Colossians 3, beginning at verse 18, says, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. So for the last three weeks, I know it might seem like it's been longer than that, but for the last three weeks, um, we've been looking at this husband-wife thing. And basically what I've tried to do is lay out the biblical model and then encourage us as, as we hopefully are already trying to follow it, but encourage us to all the more as we go forward, follow the biblical model. And someone... I think it was Lisa, I think it was my wife, it might have been somebody else, asked me after church on Sunday um, if I was done or was I going to keep talking about this. And I was like, no, nah, I'm done. It's time to, I'm moving on, is what I said. And then I had a couple of, well, there were three conversations over the course of the week that made me realize that I wasn't done. Uh, and you might be dismayed to hear that, but think about it this way. Um, if your marriage is a train wreck and you come to church <clears throat> and the preacher, teacher lays out w what you should have been doing and reminds you of what the right way to be married is, um, that might leave you feeling rather de defeated instead of encouraged because all I've done is <laughs> like paint the picture of what your marriage could have been if you hadn't screwed everything up 20 years ago. Which is not obviously my intent, but it's a, it's a possible outcome of somebody coming up here and just doing a, a didactic series on the biblical roles of men and women and what marriage is supposed to look like. And <clears throat> sometimes what that causes is you you start to stare at the problem that is your marriage and all you see is the problem and you get kind of paralyzed by it. It's like that drawer or maybe it's a room in your house or maybe it's your whole house that you don't deal with frequently enough and then when you finally, like you're confronted with it, it's just it's too much, right? You just... Like you become a statue. And I think there's three sort of thoughts that have to happen when you get paralyzed by a problem. The first one is, it's too big, I'm too small. And, and it's, that's the whole, like the problem, problem requires more resources to solve than I have. We, most Americans probably experience that feeling when we stop and look at your uh, like your debt to income situation. Um, it's too big, I'm too small, it needs more resources than I have, can also be the, the thing that causes you to think, I need help that either I don't think anybody's going to want to give me or I don't want to humble myself enough to ask for, right? Second, it's too old and I'm too young. Uh, is another way that we interpret the problem being too big. And what, what I mean by that is the problem has been growing for ages and you've only just now like been born and realized 
that it's been doing that this whole time. You've just become aware of it. Um, and then the third one is the problem is them. So your spouse and I can't control them. And I'm not, that, that's not me mocking. Like that's a real possibility. There's, um, but there's some false logic that flows from realizing the other person is mainly the problem. I'm not trying to trick you. I mean it. There are times when the other person is mainly the problem and you can't control them. Okay. I know we're reformed and, you know, no, brother, it's always you. No, sometimes it's not. (laughs) Uh, The false logic that we begin to employ when that happens is it's like uh, you hear the tornado sirens and you... If you're me, you sleep through them. If you're my wife, you wake up and get everybody up and down to the basement. And then the tornado rips through and uh, it destroys the house. But you're able to come up from the basement and look around. And the tornado has just moved next door. right? So it's past your house. You immediately came up, observed the tornado and all the destruction that it caused it would be foolish in that moment to begin picking up the rubble, right? And trying to collect your belongings. Like at least wait till it gets over to the next neighborhood. But that's not the way problems really work. And it's not even the way other people having the the majority of the responsibility for a problem should really be viewed. It's never as if there's nothing you can do. Sometimes it's all three, right? Uh, it's too big, I'm too small, it's too old, I'm too young, and it's them. It's not me. It's all the above. And, and sometimes the most encouraging thing that can happen to you, especially when you've been turned to stone by a problem, is someone comes along and just helps you organize things into manageable piles. We're not even solving it. We're just putting like things together, right? And that's all I want to try to do today. Anyway, now that you know why this is happening, uh, let's address the question. What are you supposed to do when your marriage is a smoldering pile of rubble? And if yours isn't, and you're feeling quite proud about that, let me warn you that pride comes before the fall. And second, if yours isn't, listen anyway. Hey, especially you, Naomi. Listen anyway And then you might be able to help someone else. All right, so turn to 1 Samuel 25. 1 Samuel 25, 1. Well, the second half of verse 1. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. There was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. This man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. Let me interject the context. David is... Uh, living off the land, running from, his, from King Saul, for, running for his life. 
and simultaneously looking after the needs of all the people that he and his band meet along the way. And what's been happening is they've been camped out in this spot where the shepherds of all these sheep that belong to Nabal have been grazing. And as a consequence, David and his men have been protecting Nabal's flocks. Um, so <clears throat> he sends them to go to Nabal. He sends his fellows to go to Nabal and say, hey, you've benefited from our protection. Could you spare us something to eat? So these young men go and they meet Nabal and they say, uh, yeah, would you, you know, here's the deal. Would you help us out? Uh, so look at verse nine. When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David and then they waited. And Nabal's, Nabal answered David's servants, who's David? Who's the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and water and my meat that I've killed from my shears and give it to men who come from where I do not know? So David's young men turned away and came back and told him this. And David said to every man, strap on your sword. So Nabal pretends like his good fortune has nothing to do with David's protection. And rather than repay David's kindness, he insinuates that David is just a rebellious grifter. This is a harsh and badly behaved man, Nabal. Um, on a side note, not related necessarily to marriage, but I have come across people in my life who thought that just because they hadn't asked for help, they weren't responsible for showing any gratitude for help. Things generally don't end well for those folks. I've seen it, just so you know. Food for thought, right? I don't have anybody in mind uh, here. <laughs> Be honest, right? Um, verse 14. Oh, well, let me, let me explain what happens next. Uh, when David says, strap on your swords, it's not because they're afraid Nabal's going to attack them, right? This is, we're going to go show this guy what kind of man we think he is. Now, there's a part of me that loves that. Anyway, all right, so maybe it's the unsanctified part of me. 14, one of the young men, not David's young men, but one of the Nabal's young men, told Abigail, Nabal's wife, behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm, <clears throat> and did not miss anything when we were in the fields as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us, uh, both <laughs> by night and by day, all the while we were with them keeping the sheep. I can read, believe it or not. Now therefore know this and consider what you should do, for harm is determined against our master and against all his house, and he's such a worthless man that no one can speak to him. So what, what, what happens is Abigail collects a bunch of food. She sends it ahead of herself to David, and then she races to meet David. She apologizes for Nabal's conduct and ingratitude and prevents Nabal from being destroyed and his whole house from being destroyed by David. When she gets back home from intercepting David and pacifying David, Nabal is too drunk for her to even bother talking to. So she's like, forget it, I'll wait and tell him what happened tomorrow. 
The next day, while Nabal's good and hungover, she tells Nabal how narrowly he avoided death. And it scares him so much that he has a stroke, and 10, year, 10 days later, he dies. And we love that for Nabal and Abigail, right? Because we're not sanctified enough. <laughs> Here's my point. Even before David comes on the scene, this marriage has all the markings of one that's doomed. The, the picture is Abigail is this sweet, beautiful lady and Nabal is this insufferable gas bag, and he's drunk, and he's self-satisfied. He's wealthy, so I guess that goes in the plus column, but he's cynical, he's arrogant, he's oppressive, he thinks far too highly of his own opinion. He, he doesn't appreciate God's kindness, that in the grazing season, David and his men had stood watch over all his flocks. He thinks that everything he has, he has because of his own ingenuity. David shows Nabal profound respect while Nabal shows David none. Some men are actually like this. It's just reality. And it, and it also isn't unusual for them to have somehow married someone like Abigail. It's the strangest thing to me that it would happen. I mean, not in these times, because I'm imagining this was arranged, but it doesn't matter. You still see it today. These wonderful Christian ladies married to these absolute, utter... Okay, we're going <laughs> to... Look at 2 Samuel six sixteen. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. They brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent <coughs> Excuse me, that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his house. This is getting annoying. Try moving it up. Um, <clears throat> where was I? Oh yeah, 20. David returned to bless his household, but Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, I'm going to do her voice, okay, because I have to. How the king of Israel honored himself today. That's what she sounds like. Uncovering himself before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michal, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house. I mean, this might not be the most helpful way to respond, but it's not the point. To appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this. I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. Um, <clears throat> this also has the markings of a doomed marriage. Amen? Some of you are like, what? It does? Yes. 
David comes home from work. This might help you. I'll paint the picture in suburban terms. David comes home from work after saving the country and returning the ark, and McCall isn't happy. At the end of the day, her displeasure is because she doesn't think much of David's spiritual fervor. That's, if you unpack it, that's what's really going on here. McCall thinks a man ought to behave a certain way, especially if he's a leader and a warrior. She doesn't even wait for him to hang up his keys. She meets him in the driveway to badger him. She uses sarcasm to communicate her disdain. She accuses him of behaving the way he behaved because he wanted to get attention from all the single ladies. So she's jealous, she's petulant, and she accuses David falsely. The outcome here is she's childless. It's not hard to imagine how that happened, right? I mean, nothing makes a man attracted to you like when you do that in the driveway in front of the neighbors. You're probably going to be childless too. Some women are like this. And sadly, it isn't unnatural for them to manage to marry a guy like David. It's the strangest thing to me. In a more just world, can I get an amen? Men like Nabal would find women like McCall. And they would go off and be miserable together. And Davids would find Abigails and everything would be great. But we don't live in that world. Furthermore, I've noticed, I won't say who, maybe I'm talking about myself, uh, that all husbands can be David one day and Nabal the next. Right? It was funny, wasn't it? All wives can be Abigail one day and McCall the next, right? And the, the sad reality is the same David who rescued McCall from this supposedly forced marriage that she had been given into by her father. All right, so, so McCall got promised to David by Saul. At first, Saul was like, oh, my daughter loves David and I love David too. Let's have him be engaged. But then when things started to fall apart between Saul and David, because Saul's a maniac, and evidently the apple didn't fall far from the tree, he, he gives uh, McCall off to a guy named Peltiel instead. And then once David wins the day and takes over the, the, the sovereignty of Israel, he goes to rescue McCall from Peltiel. And the Bible's not clear, but there's kind of this undertone, like maybe she didn't want to be rescued. Anyway, uh, he, he rescues her from this marriage, uh, which is noble, right, and admirable. He, he's a man of his word. He keeps his promise to McCall. Are you guys with me? Okay. But he also has quite a few concubines and other wives. So that goes in the con column, right? Um, in six chapters, we're going to be, in, if we stayed in 2 Samuel, in six chapters, we'd be dealing with a David who uh, seems a little bit more like Nabal. There will be adultery, there will be a dead husband, and there will be a dead child. Yeah, so the reality is that all of us have moments when we visit misery on one another. All husbands fail to love their wives. All wives fail to subordinate to their husbands. So what are you supposed to do when you have a husband uh, like Nabal or some variation of the man who fails to love? 
And what are you supposed to do if you have a wife like McCall or some variation of, of the woman who insults and demeans and falsely accuses and insists on running the show? It's probably not fair that I had one negative thing to say about the man like <laughs> Nabal. Anyway, you get the point. Uh, <laughs> What does God want you to do if you're in this situation? What biblical principles can we apply? That's what I want to share with you this morning. This is important. And I wrestled with how to say this or even whether to say this. Um, But I think it needs to be said. So first and foremost, I, I want to say that a spouse or a child in danger needs to get out. None of these principles apply where there is uh, physical abuse happening. You have no obligation. You have no biblical obligation to stay with someone who is violent. Um, And if you just want some practical steps, you're not even sure where to start, a good place to start is you can text START to 88788 which will get you somebody at the National Domestic Violence Hotline, or you can call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 800-799-7233. You can visit nebraskacoalition.org to get help locally. There is help for children, for teens, for adults who are in abusive situations. I don't agree with any of those programs at a political level. They are all about intersectionality and feminism. Um, Fundamentally disagree. Not certain that their help will be respectful of Christian values or uh, definitely probably not for what I've been preaching the last three weeks. But maybe you need different help than a church can offer. And I, I, so all I can say is if you come to me or any of the elders of this church and say, I'm in a domestic violence situation. We are going to involve men with guns and badges because we're not equipped to legally counsel or properly protect anyone beyond, uh, you know, just your typical marital disharmony. So if it's an abuse situation, we have laws. That's a violation of laws. I don't think it's cute or helpful for me to, you know, try to handle things in-house. Absolutely not. Uh, Might have learned that the hard way, kind of. Um, I will certainly come alongside anybody who just needs an ally in in contending with a dangerous situation, but I can't shoot somebody, right? So there's just, I mean, I can, but there's limits (laughs) to, to what I can do to help you. So assuming you're not in physical danger, that's, a, that's an important caveat. Assuming you are not in physical danger, here's how you start dealing with the problem of a broken marriage. I think first and foremost, seek help from a trustworthy counselor. Proverbs 11, 14 says, um, where there is no guidance of people falls or fails, but in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. Proverbs, 5, Proverbs 15, 22 says, without counsel, plans fail, but with many advisors, they succeed. I'm not talking about your girlfriend who you can complain about him to. 
or your guy friend who you can complain about her too. Um, a good counselor knows the gospel and can offer you objective guidance. A good counselor understands that the goal is to build up, not tear down. And a good counselor talks to you, listen, mostly about you. A good counselor talks to you mostly about you. If you can't afford a good counselor, you have five elders who will do in a pinch. We're not licensed, but we can certainly give you some practical advice and pray with you. Uh, but I'll, I had a whole section in my notes about explaining this, and I took it out because I'm like, I'm not up here to preach me. But I just need to say that like, I would very much like to be out of the counseling business. Um, it's exhausting. That's not me saying, don't come to me with your problems. That's me saying, I'm wrestling through some stuff, okay? Oh, that's not okay? Too bad. <laughs> Let's go to Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4, we're going to start at 25, we're going to work all the way through 32, and we're going to see <clears throat> some things that you can do practically to try and manage the mess. Ephesians 4.25 says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with your neighbor, for we are members of one of another. Is that more true that we are members one of another? Is that more true anywhere than it is in a marriage relationship where the two have become one flesh? So I realize it says neighbors, and that's actually just another translation of one another. Um, put away falsehood. Let each one of you speak the truth with your neighbor for we're members of one another. It's not uncommon when you're in a troubled marriage for you to start to feel like roommates or neighbors that just happen to live in the same house. There's no romance. There's no, um, you know, vibrancy to the relationship. You're just kind of going through the motions. The first thing you've got to do if you're going to deal with the mess of a troubled marriage is you have to start speaking the truth to one another. I'm not sure all the, <laughs> all the ways that we inadvertently participate in lying to one another. I'm just, I'm rethinking how I want to make this point. I'm sorry. If you don't say what you really mean and you don't say how you really feel, and you try to couch everything in, in propriety and politeness. It may take you 10 times longer to solve the problem. That does not mean that you should be brutally honest. Because I, I do, I agree 
very much with the newspaper editor whose name I can't remember that said, people that are brutally honest get more enjoyment from the brutality than the honesty. And don't take pride in the fact that you're just brutally honest. But you do have to be honest. Don't lie to one another. If, if you can get honest about the problem, even if they won't, you can start to at least from your side, deal with it. So speak mostly in terms of what actually is. Don't, don't talk about what you feel. Don't talk about what you hope. Don't talk about what was, but talk about what is. Deal with the reality that you're in right now. That requires honesty. You've got to describe the actual problem before you're ever going to address it. Much of the trouble in a broken marriage is the result of one or both parties simply not being honest about the problem. And that can mean ignoring it or it can mean inflating it. And I've dealt with both. And this is part of the reason I'm so worn out with counseling troubled marriages is because you usually got one party that wants to make a bigger deal about everything than it actually is. And you've got another party that wants to diminish everything that actually matters and insignificance. And nobody can just like, just be honest. Everybody's taking up their defensive positions and nobody wants to come out of the trenches and have a conversation. If you can't do that, there's no hope. There's no hope. And if you're like, well, I can, but they won't. We'll get to that. All right, we'll get to that. Can't force someone else to be honest, but you certainly can be. Whatever else you do, don't lie. And whenever possible, speak the truth. Okay? Verse 26, Ephesians 4. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. So, I mean, let's be honest. Calling him a loser might feel good, but it's not going to help. Calling her a harpy might feel good. It's not going to help. It just makes people defensive. So in your anger, what you have to do is remember that the person you're dealing with is created in the image of God too. Even though you might feel like it was a mistake to marry them, that doesn't make them less of an image bearer. Um, Remember that you are also a sinner and someday every secret of your heart will be judged in the light of God's holiness. Verbally incinerating one another isn't going to fix anything. And storing up resentment isn't going to fix anything. You are only inviting the devil into your home by engaging in those behaviors. I, for one, just me, don't want the devil in my home. So don't sin against one another in your anger. When you feel that frustration rising to an unmanageable level, listen, take a break. Just take a break. When you feel like you're about to say something nasty, take a break. Don't add more sin to the mess. Amen? 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. This one's less obvious, but I think you'll understand my application. In every broken marriage, someone did something evil. Usually, and by usually I mean I've never seen it not this way. I'm just trying to leave room for it to be this way. Usually, both parties have done something evil. Okay, Like you've done your share. This has to stop. 
And just because you think you've kept better track of their sins than they have of yours does not mean that you're winning somehow. Um, old habits of interaction need to be replaced by new ones. So when you, when, all right, so you're going you're gonna to get honest in your anger, you're going you're gonna to do your absolute best to, you know, not sin. And then, so you're going to come together and you're going to have a conversation where you're not lying anymore and you're not sinning in your anger anymore, but you're going to have to identify things in yourself and in them that have not been done correctly, right? The temptation is to bring the whole bag, oops, I got to come up with a new word, the whole bag of their transgressions and dump them all out on the table and go, see? And then you can feel very justified in your harsh judgment of them. Um, I would encourage you to share one or two grievances at most. Um, don't, don't, don't do them all at once. Because once the accusation of a sin is, is shared, there has to be agreement about whether that even happened. So if you've got the whole bag on the table, you're not going to get anywhere. So just start with maybe, maybe not even the worst one. Just start with a one that maybe they're going to be like, mm, I don't remember doing that, but you can, you can get them there, right? Um, and for the person that doesn't remember if you did that, maybe you didn't, probably you did, and it doesn't matter if you didn't mean to. If you did something sinful, you must repent. Yeah. Do you think it's easy or fun to, in a calm loving, honest manner, confront somebody in their sin, because it's not. Flying off the handle, cracking a beer bottle over the counter, and threatening one another and accusing each other of sin, that's fun for sinners, right? Sitting down and doing it tearfully, honestly, that is no fun. Really difficult stuff. So <laughs> if somebody loves you enough to do that, and they're looking at you in your soul windows and telling you what you've done that hurt them, and you just go, oh, you're just too sensitive. Oh, that makes me mad. Even imagining that scenario. So it doesn't matter what you meant. If you sinned, you must repent. Oh, that rhymes. We'll start a chant later. The point is... If we want to pick up the pieces, we have to repent. We've got to take responsibility for sin and commit to changing those habits. So, guys, if you've been harsh with her, what should you do instead? If she says, you're just being really harsh and cutting and mean and I don't, it just hurts. And you're like, what? You're just too sensitive. Bag up. She just said you've been harsh and cutting and mean. What should you be instead? Right, be gentle. Be kind. Be thoughtful, right? It's not easy for us because we like power tools. We like cutting, harsh, loud. It's in our nature. Ladies, if you've been badgering him and he's like, I just got to take your nagging. Ah! But I don't know. I just care about you and you won't get the oil changed. Right? What should, you, what should you be instead if he, if he confronts you with that? Instead of badgering him, listen, I'm going to surprise you with my answer. 
Because I know you sat there and thought about it, and you're like, instead of badgering, I don't know. <laughs> Be curious instead. You're not going to change the marriage for the better by using the same tact- tactics and bad behavior that you did to get into the situation, right? So where there's sin, you've got to repent. 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. And I know most of, uh, like, troubled marriage partners are ready to bail out already. You're just like, oh, geez. He's, how many more things has he got? Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. <clears throat> corrupting talk is sepros. Literally, it's worthless putrid, rotten talk. And here I would say that sometimes even things that are technically true are worthless because of the way that they're spoken. Your speech should not be designed to dismantle them. It's to give grace even when they're being nasty. When Jesus was nailed to the cross, I don't think he had like warm, fuzzy feelings towards the one wielding the hammer. But he prayed that God would forgive them nonetheless. I would hope you can manage that for the person you married. Uh, If you itemize their faults, if you itemize their faults, you prove that you possess the skill of itemization, right? I bet you could itemize their graces as well. What? I wouldn't know where to start. Oh, I bet you would. You remember Christ's encounter with the woman at the well in John 4? He's talking to the Samaritan woman, and he says, Hey, let's hit the pause button. Go call your husband and, and come back. And the woman answered, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You're right. And saying, I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one you are now with is not your husband. What you've said is true. Now, how do you imagine Jesus saying that? Gotcha! Or did he say this truth in a way that, that portrayed his sympathetic heart towards her? Do you think he was trying to humiliate her? Should we do that with one another then? When there's marital disharmony. So real quick, let me run back through these four things. We're almost done. I know you're like, hooray. First, be honest with one another as you begin to deal with the broken relationship. Lying won't help. If you're going to lie, just shut up. Don't say anything. If you cannot speak the truth, be quiet. Don't lie. Two, in your anger, remember that the goal is restoration, not retribution. So spiteful anger is just going to invite the devil into the equation. I don't think you want that. Third, wherever there has been sin, there has to be repentance. But don't try to deal with all of it at once, right? God doesn't make us deal with all of our sin at once or it would kill us, according to the psalmist. Fourth, eliminate worthless talking. Words that are designed to dismantle will not get you out of the problem. They will make it worse. So you've got to find a way to be honest without being destructive. Three more, all right? So verse 30 says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. I know we Baptists like to call it the day of judgment, right? 
But here God points out that for those who are in Christ, it will be a day of redemption. That day, Jesus will restore all things. So let's let restoration be our goal, right? We want to be like Jesus. Oh, good. If I pause, you respond. Noted. If Jesus is going to redeem all his people from this broken world, let's let redemption be our goal. If you're bitter, unforgiving, spiteful, and cling to your wounds rather than the cross of Christ, you grieve the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? Well, I don't know. I would say you grieve him in his work, not in his immutable person as part of the triune God. But you know what the Holy Spirit's doing right now on your heart if you are a Nabal or a Macal? He's working, shining light, whereby he might convict you of sin and bring you to repentance. To ignore that, to suppress that, to insist on being spiteful instead is to grieve him in his work. No matter how wounded you are, listen, no matter how wounded you are, how much you think there's no hope, if you will leave room for the Holy Spirit to work, you will see miraculous redemption beyond anything you would have assumed was possible. Some of you can testify that this was true, is true rather. Because you've been in a marriage that nearly ended. Divorce was a certainty. Restoration was impossible. And then it turns out with God, all things are possible. 31. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. I heard someone say once that being bitter is like drinking poison and hoping the person that hurts your feelings will die. Bitterness, wrath, anger, malice. These are the clothes of the unregenerate from back in Colossians 3.8. Clamor and slander is the screaming, yelling, and evil speaking that we do when we're in a marital fight. These are the sounds of demons, not the soft answer that turns away wrath. And I think, I mean, I don't know, but I suspect that it's the sounds of a broken marriage that stay with you long after. Because they echo. So that comes back later on. And it sounds a little more eerie than it did at first. Years later. More disturbing. So let the noise cease. It's not as if the louder you are, the more correct you are anyway, right? It's not as if the louder you are, the more correct you are anyway, right? It's not as if. All right. 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. You might have to pray for a long time before you can really forgive what your spouse did. But you are only as compassionate, tender, and gentle as you are forgiving. So if you think yourself compassionate and tender, think again if you have resentment towards somebody uh, for their sin against you. Remember what God has forgiven you, right? What if they won't? 
And so what if they won't be honest about the problem? What if they won't stop sinning in anger? What if they won't repent and do things differently? What if they continue to destroy you verbally? What if they don't care about grieving the Holy Spirit? What if they keep on being angry, spiteful, hollering and yelling? And what if they won't forgive you? What if they won't? Well, they probably aren't believers, right? So then the question becomes, what does the scripture say about living with an unbeliever in marriage? 1 Corinthians 7, 10. The Lord gives this charge. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. So he's giving practical advice, right? If any woman has a husband who's an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. If the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So practically speaking, what, uh, what 1 Corinthians 7 is telling you is that, <clears throat> that you don't need to be in a rush to change your marital status because there's disharmony and disunity flowing from the fact that you are trying to serve Jesus Christ and obey him and they are not. What that tells me is we probably need to have a realistic expectation. What do you expect from somebody who has rejected the gospel? Are you going to hold them to scriptural account? They don't care what the Bible says. They think it's mostly drivel written by guys on mushrooms a thousand or fifteen hundred years ago. You can't hold them to account to something they've refused to be held account to. So you got to change your expectations. So how about this? Are they cheating on you? Nope. Uh, that's adultery in biblical terms, sorry. Uh, are they getting drunk and beating you? Nope. All right. What are they doing? Just a bunch of irritating stuff, unbefitting of a Christian spouse. Okay, well, they're not a Christian. You married them. If you can, if they're willing, stay put. Pray. See what the Lord might be pleased to do. We are so busy being fulfilled in America in 2023, the United States, sorry. We're so busy trying to have lives that are, you know, uh, full of meaning and purpose that even as Christians, we dismiss the very thing that we're supposed to be doing in the pursuit of meaning and purpose. Endure it. Suffer. I doubt anybody in the sound of this message was put into an arranged marriage. 
So I feel pretty confident in saying you liked him enough at some point to get yourself into this situation. Now you act like a Christian. You obey what the scriptures have said. You do those seven things to the best of your ability. You seek counseling and help and support in the midst of doing that. But don't be looking for an excuse to bail out. Who knows? You might be the reason they come to faith in Christ. And boy, then wouldn't it be worth it? Let me close this in prayer.